Amen? Amen? So, uh, I'm not the one who selects these videos. I don't know. I think Phil did, but ironically enough, Hurricane Katrina was Fred Luter's winter. Right? It was a time in his life where God just really started rocking his faith, and I had the privilege of being in a conference with him when he was navigating through this period in his life. And um, just remember this, that God does his deepest work oftentimes in the winters of our lives, and God always does his deepest work in the deepest part of us. And so God radically changed um, a portion of his life as a result of coming to the other side of winter and being able to experience spring and summer and fall and the, um, just the harvest that came about as a result of Fred, his church, and others who were ministering to those who were devastated by that hurricane. And I got to hear Fred pre preach in our convention um, a message uh, after this had all happened, and he's gotten through it all, and, and God's blessing in mighty ways, and he preached a message on faith, which was probably one of the most profound messages on faith that I'd ever heard. And that message was birthed out of that long winter in his life. God did it a deep work. And so as we are in the... Uh, book of Ecclesiastes, and we're reminded, again, that life has seasons, and God does some of his deepest work in the deepest parts of us in some of the most difficult seasons in our lives. So today we're going to talk about um, the problem with God. In the remainder of chapter 3 and through chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon raises five issues that force us out of our comfort zones and into the wisdom of God. Now today, I'm only going to tackle one of those five. Next week, we'll do all four uh, that are remaining. So I'm being kind to you today because this is a snowy day, so I'm going to have grace and mercy on you, right? We're not going to do all five. Thought about it, but then I, I, I got rid of it. So what we're going to talk about today is what I would call the problem of faulty justice. Faulty justice. Now, what I mean by that is that sometimes... Things happen in our lives that hurt us very profoundly. In fact, they might be life-crushing experiences that someone else has brought into your life, and then you want justice, right? You, you demand justice. For example, uh, my neighbor, um, he's putting up a door for me. It's kind of like a, a special door in my house, and his wife last week took her two children to the babysitter, now, the car's at the curb, still running. She takes the children up to the babysitter. The babysitter opens the front door. The children go inside. She turns around. An SUV pulls up behind her car. Somebody jumps out and steals her car. I just drove off with it. So all of her stuff is in there, her purse and, and, and all of her personal belongings. And so they threw out her cell phone. They threw it out the window. And, um, you know, they didn't find the car until a day later, two days later. They'd wrecked the car. And so, so what, what is it you, well, as a reminder, first of all, do not leave your car running and turn your back on it, okay? But, you know, you want, you want justice, right? You want the people to get caught. You want them to have to pay. You want them to have to restore what you've lost. And so sometimes, though, these people who do these things don't ever get caught. 
they've never apprehended, even though it was all on video, the security camera of her babysitter's house had all of it on video, but they never caught anyone who, you know, perpetrated this, this crime. And so in, instinctively, we, we say, well, I want justice, and I want justice now. And there's just so many things that happen to us in life where we scream out, and we want life to be fair, and we want to be you know, God to be just in all ways and justice to happen right, like right here and now. And sometimes we like to think of God uh, as he relates to people like Santa Claus does, right? There, there's a naughty people and there are nice people and he has a list and he's always looking at that list to see who's naughty and nice. And of course, if you're naughty, you always get the bad things, right? You get the lump of coal, bad things happen to you in life. But if you're the nice person, then things are always going to happen that are good, the things that are beneficial to you. And so we sometimes try to relate to God that way. God, this is the way it should be because there is in us, because we're created in the image of God, this instinctiveness to want justice to happen in this world. And so it's like, God, if you're just, then the naughty people ought to have to pay and the nice people ought to reap the benefits of being nice. But we understand and we know that life just isn't that way. That a lot of times, very good things happen to very naughty people and very bad things happen to very good people. This is just a part of life. And this really confused Solomon. And he just starts grappling with this and so, you know, you may be struggling, for example, financially. And maybe you're struggling because you don't have a job. During the COVID time, you've lost your job. You're struggling financially. And yet, during the same period of time, you have people like, you know, Jeff Bezos or, or those you know, on, in Wall Street who maybe don't even know God, don't even care about God. And yet, they're ma they've made a gazillion dollars during COVID. And you're struggling. And you're a child of God. And you're walking faithfully after God. And you're struggling. And they're not. And you're saying like Solomon would say, this isn't fair. This should not be. God ought to treat us like Santa Claus, right? I've been nice. I need to deserve the nice things. They've been naughty. They deserve the naughty things. Or when you come to Hebrews chapter 11, and uh, I'm going to read from there. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but you recall that Hebrews 11, it was kind of the faith chapter where people were highlighted for the greatness of their faith. But then at the end, we just have a whole group of nameless people, and it says that others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while others still were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated, the world was not only worthy of them, they wandered in the deserts and mountains and in the caves and the holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet, not, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And so here is, you know, this situation in the early church where people are just being persecuted and abused and misused. And you have all these people who are ruthless people and wicked people and evil people like King Herod who took the lives of the, you know, young boys two years and younger and had them slaughtered from the Jewish mothers because, you know, he thought it, there was a, a rival Messiah there. And, and where's the fairness in that? Where's the justness in that. And so all kinds of things that we grapple with in life and we have to deal with in life deal with the issue of faulty justice and we have a problem with God over that whether we acknowledge it or not. And so 
Solomon is really going to raise two questions for us that he's going to seek to answer through observation. The first one, I put these on your outline. Why do bad things happen to good people and why do good things happen to bad people? This has always been a struggle of humanity, especially for Christians. We just seem to think, you know, well, I'm a follower of Jesus and, and if God were Santa Claus, bad things would, wouldn't happen to good people and good things wouldn't happen to bad people. And how many of you lived with the mindset that if you were just faithful to God and if you just obeyed all of his ways and, and walked after him, that life, you know, would always, your life would always be protected from harm. It would be protected from trials. It'd be protected from discouragement and depression and difficulties. And you would always have the favor of God and you wouldn't catch bad breaks, but the favor of God would always be on you in a very special and unique way. And, and the reason why I know this happens to us and there's this sense of injustice in within us that we grapple with is because when something happens that is not good and is very harmful and, and is, we causes us to hit the dead of winter in life is that we immediately go through our mental checklist as God, did I do something wrong? Am I not praying enough? Am I not reading my Bible enough? Did not, you know, what is it about what I am doing that is causing you to allow these things to happen in my life? This isn't, this isn't fair. It's not, it's not just. And we struggle. And some people struggle in a very deep and profound way. And so the second question is this that I want to answer this morning. So in light of that, is it possible? Is it possible that God asks that you do? Just let me get back. So is it possible to do all that God asks of you and still have your life fall apart? Is it possible? So Solomon's going to answer these two questions through three observations in the remainder of chapter 3 in Ecclesiastes. And so here's the first one. Life is hard. Life is hard. It's not always fair. Life is hard, but justice will come. Notice I said will come. It's a future thing. Not all justice will happen in your lifetime. Not every, not every wrong is going to be made right in your lifetime. Because life is hard. It's just not always fair. So look what Je Solomon says in chapter 3 and verse 16. He says, and I saw something else under the sun. Remember, he's, he's living under the sun, which means, you know, he's, God's not really his perspective. He's is uh, not really brought into the scenario. He's just living life on earth apart from God, and God's out there, and he's down here. And in the place of, of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. And so he says, I, I, I look out into the world and I just see a lot of bad things happening to a lot of good people. And I'm wondering why. Well, where's the fairness? Where's the justness in that? And so our problem with God is that we always want God to tip the scales our way. And so, for example, you may have a friend who goes to the doctor because they're having a physical problem and while they're being examined, the doctor says, you know, I, I noticed something. Um, like, for example, my wife, she went to the doctor and about a mole on her body. And the doctor looked at it and said, the dermatologist looked at it and said, well, there's nothing wrong with this, but I noticed something over here. 
and let me take a biopsy of that, and they took a biopsy of that, and it turned out to be melanoma. So they caught it early, was able to do surgery and, and, and remove all the melanoma, but what about somebody who, um, maybe that's a, a, another friend of yours, goes through a very similar scenario, but by the time they get to the doctor, the doctor says, I'm sorry, you're filled with cancer, there's nothing we can do, you're going to die in six months. Where's the fairness? Where's the, these are both good people, they're honest people, God-fearing people, love Jesus, walk with Jesus, but yet two totally different outcomes. And we face these kinds of things all the time. Where one parent, you know, a set of parents, uh, suddenly their, their child is, you know, they're, they're in a car accident and their, their child dies. And another set of parents are in a similar car accident, but their child lives. Well, what determines that? Why, why, how is that fair? How is that just? Where, where is God in all of that? You look around the world and people all across the world are living in huts where they make less than $2 a day at best. And yet here we live in America and we live in our 2,100 to 3,500 square feet houses with perfectly manicured lawns and we go to our refrigerator and it's always full of food. We turn on our faucet, it's always running water coming out. And so we, we have things we, we have cars and we have garages. I mean, I've been in many parts of the world that are like, garages? What do you do with a garage? We park our cars. Why would you park your car in a garage? See, that's just absolutely foreign to them. And our biggest problems oftentimes as Americans is like, like did Starbucks get my order right? Did they spell my name right on the cup? And so where's the fairness? Where's the justice of that? Like, why is it that I'm so privileged to grow up in America where there are other people who grow up in many different parts of the world that are far less fortunate and have far less and just are barely making it? And children die by the millions of starvation or bad water, and yet we have perfectly good drinking water 24-7. And so for Solomon, he would say, I told you. See, there's no justice. There's no pattern. There, there's nothing to go by. There's no continuity. Some kids are in their 30s and both of their parents have died. Some people are in their 60s. Both of their parents are still alive. How do you explain that? Where, where's the fairness in that? Where's the justice in all of that? And so Solomon would say to us, like what your parents probably said to you growing up, listen, buddy, as my mother would say, life isn't always fair. You just better adjust and get used to it. Because life is not always fair, and it bothers us. And sometimes when it's, the fairness hits us, it bothers us even more, and we have a problem with God. I mean, in our Western mindset, when you come to the Gospels, if you really read the Gospels, not so much through a Western mindset, but through an Eastern mindset of, as to why thing, things are happening, not you know, well, what's the reason behind it? When you look at the life of Jesus and his interaction with people and his healing ministry in particular, there seems to be some inconsistency. There seems to be some unfairness in that, that healing ministry. 
I mean, Jesus didn't come just to heal. He came for many different reasons, but that was obviously a very important part of his ministry while he was here on earth. And as Jesus walked in the first century, there was very little medical technology at that point in time. And people had huge physical problems and they had, you know, physical ailments. And Jesus would be around people and there would be like hundreds of people. They're bringing people to Jesus and they, they're all needing healing. And Jesus might select just one person out of the group and heal them. And after the healing's done, he moves on to the next city. And what about all the other people who are left behind? What about all those who did not receive their healing? For example, in John chapter 5, we have the story where Jesus comes to Bethsaida and um, there, is a, there are healing pools there. And it was believed that when the angels stirred those healing pools, that the first person in would get healed. And so you have this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. He's laying by these pools and, and Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus looks at him and says, what do you want me to do? Do you, do you want to be healed? Well, yeah, uh, I, I'm just not like laying here for my health, right? So Jesus does, he says, he looks at him, says, pick up your mat, rise up and walk. And he does. But John was very very, very particular in reminding us that at that same, in that same scenario, there were many people there who needed healing. And there were a lot of people who wanted a touch from the hand of God. But yet Jesus heals this one man and then he leaves. Where's the fairness? Where is the justice? Where does that seem a little bit inconsistent? And oftentimes you would see this with, with Jesus. Um, Guy walks up to Jesus, the rich young ruler, you know, we, he's a guy, he's rich, he's young, he's got a prominent position, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do, you're going to sell everything that you have, you're going to give it to the poor, come and follow me. And the guy had a lot, and he just said, I, I can't do that, so he walks away. But then later on, Jesus is, you know, on the cross, there's two criminals behind him. These are guys who are like insurrectionists, probably have killed some people, which is why they're on the cross. And the one guy is, you know, just hurling insults at Jesus. The next guy says basically the same thing that the rich young ruler asked him, said, Lord, you know, um, man, remember me when you come into your inheritance. And in other words, Lord, what, do I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, don't worry about it. In five minutes, you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, he tells the one guy he's got to sell everything he has, give it to the poor, and follow him. To the next guy, he says, well, don't worry about it. Don't worry about what you've done in the past. Five minutes, paradise. Here we go. So if you start looking at the life of Jesus and his ministry through a different set of eyes, you begin to see some things that we would consider as inconsistencies. I mean, think about Lazarus. Yes, he was a friend of Jesus, and Jesus loved Lazarus, but when Jesus came to that, came into the hometown of Lazarus, and he stood in front of the tomb, and he called his name, even though Lazarus has been dead for four days, the, again, John tells us that there were a lot of people there mourning with Mary and Martha over the death of their brother, and don't you think that some of them may have said to Jesus, like, Jesus that grave right over there, my husband's there. How about saying his name? My son, my, my son was 12 years old, in an accident, died. His grave's right there. How about saying his name? But we don't read in Scripture that Jesus called anyone else out of their grave. 
at that moment in time. Doesn't he love them? Doesn't he care? Where's, where's the justice? Two people go into the hospital with COVID. One comes out and the other doesn't. And if you think that God healed, heals someone because they're somehow special and his favorite, you would be sadly mistaken. The Bible says he loves all of us and he cares deeply about us. And so Solomon says life under the sun and it's hard. It's not always fair. It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem consistent that life has a lot of pain and suffering and death and tragedy and planes are going to go down and children are going to die and co-workers are going to stab you in the back. And... But then he says, but there is coming a day. There's coming a day where everything is going to be made right, where everything is going to be put back in its place, that sickness will be reversed and people will be judged and there will be a righteous judge that will put everything perfectly back in its place. The problem is that we always want answers now and we want justice now. If we're really honest with ourselves, when something bad happens to us, we want vengeance and we want it now. Now, on a much smaller scale, um, I, for example, ordered a vacuum cleaner off of Amazon from this company, and um, it's one of those skinny little vacuums, so I bought that thing, and I got it, charged up the battery, it worked twice, dead. So they send a little card, I call the place, you know, the customer service, I get somebody on the phone, and, and somebody that doesn't speak real good English, but we converse with one another, and she says, well, this is what I want you to do, and so I did all that and, and heard nothing from them. So the second time I had called back, um, now all of a sudden, the, um, it always goes to voicemail, and their voicemail box is always full. So I'm out 150 bucks. And I'm mad. It's like, this thing worked twice, right? All I'm asking you to, uh, all I ask them to do is just send me a new battery for this thing. And they, oh, yeah, we'll do that with no problem. And so I waited and waited. I've called and called. I've gone on the website. I've tried calling the company and other places. Nothing. And so, you know, things like that happen to you. That's irritating, right? And so you want vengeance. You want justice. You're like, they owe me $150. And so, you know, in, in my... Um, <laughs> righteous attitude. I'm like, okay, I'm going I'm to write a scathing review on, on Amazon. And that's exactly what I did. Do you think anybody gives a rip about that? No, they don't. Now, let's take this to a much deeper level. The idea that God's final judgment is coming is the only reason sometimes that we wake up in the morning and we don't go out and we don't try to repay evil with evil. You know, I, I, I know a couple whose child was murdered. And when your child is murdered, you, your heart cries out for justice and vengeance, right? Now watch this. If you're not careful, your heart starts start so focusing on that individual who created the pain in your life, that, that anger, that hurt evolves to anger and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness, 
And now all of a sudden you have poisoned your emotional system. You have opened a huge door for the enemy, for Satan to come in and wreak havoc in your life because you so want justice. You so demand vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the parents. And we would sit back and say, you know what? I don't blame them. If it was my child, if it was my grandchild, that, that would be the call of my heart, right? That's what I would want. That's what I would desire. And God says, there will come a day when those who do wrong will pay for what they've done, but the day may not come today. It may not even come in your lifetime. But in the end, God will make all the wrongs right. But we're all concerned about what? The here and now. But I don't want to wait. I want it here. I want it now. I want to make sure that person actually pays for what they have done. And so Jesus gave us parables where he says, listen, I'm going to let the wheat and the chaff grow up together, but one day I will separate it. I'm going to let love and hate grow up together, but one day I will separate it. I'm going to let wickedness and righteousness grow up together. One day I will separate it. But in the meantime, we are going to live in a world among people where bad things happen, and it seems like they've gotten away with it, and it seems like there's no justice. It seems like there's no consistency with God. It seems like God has turned a deaf ear to us. It seems like, it seems like, it seems like, and if we're not careful, we just keep traveling that pathway rooted in bitterness and rooted in unforgiveness. And I'm telling you, it absolutely just rips us on the inside and it causes us to become so vengeful and bitter and judgmental that when we look at other people who hurt us in the least way or we deem things that are, you know, injustices in society, if we're not careful, we begin to hate the very people that we've been called to love. Instead of loving them, we hate them and we judge them because we feel like, you know what, if God's going to wait till the end of the world before his judgment and justice all is, melt, you know, given out, I'm going to give some of it out here and I'm going to give some of it out now and I'm going to make sure they pay you notice what Solomon says there will be a time for every activity a time for every deed hence that word deed almost every single passage that talks about judgment of the on the final uh, final days of God's judgment it always talks about works or deeds or what you did with your life. Revelation 20, great white throne judgment, says the books were open, books plural. One of those books was the deeds, that the, you know, the things that the person had done. Or you look at um, John chapter 5, Romans 2, Matthew 25, where he's talking about God separating sheep and goat. And, you know, what did you do with the least of these? Or even Ecclesiastes 3. And so the books get open. The question is, what did you do? What did you do with your life, right? Did you only feed yourself? Did you only clothe yourself? Did you help anybody else during the course of your lifetime? Why are these things always brought up, these deeds, when we're dealing with God's justice and God's judgment? And so when we stand before Jesus, and it might be that, you know, you sponsored a kid through, you know, World Vision or Southern Organization, and you can say, and, and the Lord looks at that and says, yes, you have fed, you have clothed this child for many, many years through your, 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 your donations. And, and so um, because of this, this side of, of justice within us and this, this need for vengeance, um, God's very concerned about our deeds, what we do with all of that pent-up anger and bitterness and resentment. And he will call us an account for what we do with all of that. 
in the future. It's the basis of all racism and sexism and all, any other ism that you can think of. It's also fundamentally incompatible with the authentic Christian faith. Jesus said Christians are supposed to be known for their love, not for being judgmental. But yet any survey that's ever been conducted when unbelieving people are asked, how do you view Christians, were almost always viewed as being judgmental. And I think there's a reason. I think that with this problem with God, this thing that we struggle with, this thing that we try to deal with inside of us, and all of this pent-up emotion, especially when it's personal to you, um, we, can, we, can, we can become judgmental and begin treating people in a way that is, that is unchrist-like. For when Jesus came uh, against people, you know, came to people who were, who were struggling in their lives, one of the things that he beautifully blended together is that he blended grace and truth together, right? So you can't just have one or the other. You can't just have grace without truth because that just gives everybody license to do whatever they want, and that's not love. Because there are a lot of things that people do that they may not know that is harmful for, you know, for them. But you know, God understands it's harmful and so he warns us about it. But you can't have all truth without grace because then otherwise you just seem to be harsh and judgmental and not caring. So Jesus beautifully fused the two together. Here's my point is this, is that we live in a world where justice is not always done immediately. We live in a world where justice may not fully come until the end of our lives, until Jesus, you know, he's the judge and jury over the judgment seat of Christ, over the great white throne judgment, and he makes all things, you know, the wrongs right, and, and, you know, he's the one who, who deals out the justice to those, whether good or bad, and so in the meantime, what we have to be careful as believers, as followers of Christ, is that we don't let Satan root this bitterness within us. As the Bible says, let no root of bitterness spring up within you. Because if you do, then we become more judgmental than we, do, than we are loving. So when Jesus, again, <laughs> says to us, hey, 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 your enemies, yeah, the ones that hurt you, Judge them. Man, go after them. Pick at them. Do whatever you make them feel bad. Just make them pay until I deal with them later. Is that what he said? He said, No, I want you to love them. I want you to pray for them. And I want you to do good towards them. What? Do you, do, Lord, did you, did, you, did you see what they did? did you, do you know what they've done to me? Do you. Have you heard what they said about me? You know, your coworker that stabbed you in the back, that slandered you, that tore down your character to all your coworkers so that they would dislike you as much as they did? And so, loveless truth is always found in, in judgment. It's impossible to love someone and judge someone at the same time. But what if they're making a mistake? I need to correct them. Well, then do it in love, not in judgmental superior attitude. What is a superior attitude? A superior attitude is an attitude that conveys to somebody, I'm better than you, I'm smarter than you, I'm more righteous than you, you ought to be like me. Uh, you know, if you were like me, you would be okay, right? And uh, one of the first things I do when I, when I meet people who are really struggling, right, and they're, and they're just like... 
they're in a winter of, of life and there's just got a lot of, maybe it's bad habits, maybe it's addictions or whatever it might be in their life going on. And, and you know, they, they find out I'm a pastor. You know, when people find out I'm a pastor, it's amazing how people's countenance change, the, the conversation changes. You can just see the look on their face like, oh, you're going to judge me, aren't you? And so one of the very first things I do immediately is I start sharing let me tell you, can I just tell you my story? Can I share my story with you and tell them about my past? Because immediately it puts us on level playing ground. It's my way of saying, I'm not coming to you with judgmental attitude. I'm not coming with you with any air of superiority. I want you to know, man, I've been where you are. I think we can connect. I think I could help you if you want help. But if you don't want help, then okay. You know, when, when the reason why Jesus asks people all the time, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? Do you really want to be well? Is because if people didn't want it, guess what he did? He walked away. You cannot help anybody who doesn't want help. No one. And so if I, if I come with, you know, with love, nobody has, has been forced into change because somebody judged them into that change, but millions of people have been changed because somebody helped love them into that change. So when I got saved and I was in a youth group, man, and, and I was, you know, a pretty scary person and I just wasn't uh, well-rounded around the edges and and said thing and did things because I wanted to test the authenticity of this love that people said that they had and care and concern, but they just kept loving me, right? So, you know, if I'm smoking a joint out in the parking lot, they just kept loving me. If, if I, you know, said some curse words in church, they didn't, like, remove me and judge me and say, you can't never come back. See, the purpose of stepping into someone else's life is not to judge them, but it's to help them. And the way that we do that is we love them. Judgment is not grounded, is grounded in arrogance. Love is always grounded in humility. It's always grounded in humility. Judgment always says I'm better than you and I'm superior to you, but humility does not do that. You can't pray for someone you judge because you're actually not for them. Do you know you can pray for a person out of anger, out of arrogance, out of a sense of superiority, not even realize what you're doing? That's not the prayer Jesus is looking for. He's looking for prayer warriors who will love people, who will pray for them in a humble way because we know that we're just two beggars, right? One beggar telling the other beggar where they can find the bread of life. It's not because I'm superior to you. It's not because I'm smarter than you. It's not because, uh, you know, God loves me more than you. It is because God wants to help you. God wants to see you saved. God wants to see you set free. God wants to see you healed and delivered from the strongholds that wreak havoc. So here's what the Bible says to us in Romans 12. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And so true judgment is left to God. That's why we have this love-hate relationship with justice because we want, we want justice when somebody else hurts us, but if we hurt somebody else, we want what? Mercy. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. I won't do it again. It'll never happen. 
My whole point in this first point, I know it's been a long point, and I'll speed up the process here, is simply this. You have to be okay. If you're going to make it in life, and you're going to offload all of this hurt, anger, bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness, you have to be okay with the fact that justice will not always be done in your lifetime towards the people who hurt you, but God will settle the score eventually. It's not ours to sit in the seat of judgment. It is ours to sit in the seat of love so that we can take the gospel, the healing power of God, to the lives of those who even harm us. It's amazing to me that how many people, and they're far and few in between, but how many of them, you know, their, their child was murdered by somebody, and yet they go to the courthouse, and they meet the person, and they let that person know, I'm not going to harbor anger, I'm not going to harbor, harbor bitterness for the rest of my life, I want you to know that I forgive you, I love you, and I pray God's grace upon you. And how that melts the heart of the perpetrator, but not always. Not always. And so the second thing, observation he makes is that death is certain, but it's not the end. Death is certain, but it's not the end. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust they will return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of animal goes down into the earth? That's pretty harsh. I've watched enough in National Geographic to know that the animal kingdom is a harsh place. Right? You're always on the food chain and somebody's after you as their next meal. Right? They, they bite, they devour, they do everything for survival. Kind of sounds like the realm of humanity. You don't think we don't bite and devour? Step out on Black Friday into the stores and go after a TV that's on sale. I remember my mom worked in a, in a department store, and that was back in the day when Cabbage Patch dolls were just like all the rage, right? Cabbage Patch dolls. And, uh, you know, it was Christmas time, and so they had a big sale, and the Cabbage Patch dolls, and, and you know, people just stormed the store, and the, I mean, she said, we just stood behind the counter and just started, like, tossing them over the counter for fear of being stamped, you know, just tromped to death by people wanting to get a Cabbage Patch doll. Now, you can't even hardly find a Cabbage Patch doll, and most people don't even know what they are, and they don't even care, <laughs> Right? The things that we devour each other for on Sunday are things that we forget about by the following week. This is humanity. And so he's saying, you know, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if somebody died and came back and told us what it's like on the other side? Solomon didn't have Jesus. We do. Solomon didn't have the New Testament. We do. All he knew is, like, you know what? I'm traveling along with my horse. He dies, I die. We both get put in a hole and dirt thrown on top of us. Life is so meaningless. There's no justice in that. Lord, where's the consistency here? Now, we know better, right? We have the New Testament. We have Jesus who died, came back, told us what it's all about. 
But yet people every day, we rub shoulders with people every day who have all kinds of views and philosophies about what happens after death. There are those who are universalists, and the universalist simply says, yes, we all die, and yes, you may go to heaven, I may go to hell, but in the end, God's going to empty out hell and bring him into heaven and say, okay, you know, all the oxen free, come out, come out from wherever you are, I'm giving you free passage, uh, you know, you, you suffered long enough, we're all going to be brought to the same place, and we're all going to sing Kumbaya together. So that's what a universalist believes, and most Christians would say, well, I'm not a universalist, but when you really push a lot of uni- uh, uh, Christians about universalism, they really kind of are. It's like, uh, it's one of the reasons why we don't have such a passion that we need to have about sharing the gospel with the lost, because in our minds, we're thinking, well, maybe in the end, we all just end up in the same place. And then there are those who believe in in annihilation, right? Uh, That's what I believed growing up. Not because somebody taught me that. It was just, I I thought, you know, once after you die, you're just annihilated. You don't even know that you've ever existed. You know, you got this life, eat, drink, and be merry. Because after you die, it's all over with. There's just nothing else left. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. And certainly, um, you know, Jesus talked more about heaven and hell than anyone else in the scripture. And he always talked in terms of eternity and, and not temporary and something that was eternal, something that lasts forever. And he talks about a narrow path, a few who find it that leads to paradise, and there's a broad path, and many who find it that leads to destruction. And so, you know, Jesus wasn't fuzzy on his views about universalism and annihilationism. There's reincarnation and purgatory, both basically teach the same thing that somewhere in the future you're going to have a second chance at salvation. Just wait it out. But yet, Hebrews 9 27 says, It is an appointed unto man to die once, and after this, the judgment. Or soul sleep, you've heard of that, where you just slip into an unconscious state and at some point you'll be resurrected and brought into heaven. Yet the Apostle Paul did not teach soul sleeping. He talked about being absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. And the tense of those verbs is that it is, it is an immediate thing. It's not like you, you go into some kind of soul sleep that, that you're going to be there in suspended state of unconsciousness for an extended period of time. And then there's the one that we all hear every time you go to a funeral at any funeral home and anybody you've ever walked up to a casket to, regardless of what their life was like, the person sitting there, the loved one says, well, he really looks good um, and I know he's gone to or she has gone to a better place. What is the better place? For most people, they have the concept that we turn into angels. The Bible does not teach that humanity turns into angels. Angels are created beings apart from humanity. We don't sit in heaven, you know, strumming a harp and singing songs in a diaper on a cloud. Those, those are just, you know, figments of people's imagination. And But Jesus comes along in John chapter 5 and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you. Now when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he says, listen, I want to I download some truth into you. And I don't have time to read it because I'm out of time, but if you were to read John chapter 25 or John 5 through verses 25 through 29, here's what you would find is that there is coming the day where Jesus will be the judge, right? So here's what the Bible teaches, that you and I have spirit, soul, and body. When we physically die, our spirit, our soul, the eternal part of us separates from the body. Yes, the body is put into the ground, but for a temporary period of time, that one day Jesus will come back, he will resurrect that body, and it will be reunited with my soul, and I will be complete. The salvation process will have 
fulfilled its completion. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will stand at the great at the uh, judgment seat of Christ. You're not being judged as to whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. Your eternal security was secured the moment you 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 chose to to uh, put your faith and trust in Jesus. But you will be judged on the things that we do, the things that we say. The Bible is very clear about what is going to happen at the judgment seat. It has all to do with the things that we do, the things that we say, the motives that we've had. And we're, we're judged on the basis of rewards that are going to be given to us and positions that we will hold all throughout eternity. However, for the unbeliever, they go again. They're buried just like us. They're, they're their soul, it goes into Hades, a kind of a holding tank for the unbelieving. And one day that body will be resurrected, reunited with their soul, and they will stand at the great white throne judgment of Christ. And again, the books are going to be open. And he says in the end, all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, they will go on to eternal destruction. Not destruction in that they're annihilated, but in that they are going to receive punishment in hell, right? So the, that's eternal. It's not temporary. It is eternal place. And why would God do that? Well, that's a whole nother message. But I will say this, God is just. If you looked at Jesus's parable about the two men who died, one went to, went to paradise and the other did not. The one who was in hell, not, not one time did he ever say, you are unjust for sending me here. The only thing he says was, hey, bring have somebody go get me some water. I need my thirst quenched. And so what Jesus goes on to say is that all judgment has been placed into the hands of Christ. And Jesus will judge righteously. He knows all things. It will be truthful. It will be just. It will be complete. And therefore, because Christ is the ultimate judge, you and I have no right to sit in that seat. Doesn't mean that we throw out police officers or courtrooms or oh, those things seeking justice for the things that are done wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. But I'm simply saying that not every injustice that's done to us is going to be dealt with adequately and completely in this lifetime. Number three, life continues, but it may not always be easy. So the second question I ask you is, is it possible to do all that God asks you and still have your life fall apart? And the answer to that question is equivalently, yes, it is. I can give you all kinds of examples. John the Baptist would be one. Jesus said of John the Baptist, there's no greater prophet than John the Baptist. He was the one who recognized Jesus. He is the forerunner to the Messiah. He is the one who preached and people came and repented of their sins and were baptized. And yet John the Baptist is thrown into prison and he sends word to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, um, I'm in prison. Am I getting out? And Jesus sent back word to John. It's called a remise, which means he gave him part of a passage, but not the whole passage. And the part that he left out is where Jesus will set the prisoners free. And what he was saying to John is, John, you're not getting out of prison and John is beheaded. Was John a good guy? Yes. Was he doing what God wanted him to do? Absolutely. Is it what God created him to be and do? You bet it was, but yet it did not turn out well for him. Or Jeremiah, the prophet of God. He had a prophetic ministry to the nations. And God said to Jeremiah, hey, I want you to know some things. First of all, ain't nobody going to listen to you. 
And secondly, you're going to be ridiculed. And thirdly, things aren't going to go well at all. And they didn't. Or you look at uh, Moses, you know, he spent 40 years leading Israel in the wilderness only to die without being able to enter into the promised land. Or what about Mary, the mother of Jesus, given the privilege to giving birth to the Messiah, but when Jesus was taken to the temple to be circumcised, Simeon said to her, a sword is going to pierce your soul. And it did. See, we can do what God is calling us to do, and we can do the things that God has instructed us to do, but it doesn't always mean that your life is not going to fall apart in some way. Or just look at those in Hebrews chapter 11. Time and time again, God asks us, will you love me and follow me even when it hurts? Even when it doesn't make sense? Even when you want to resign and go the opposite way? I've seen many people walk away from the faith when they feel like things entered into their lives that were filtered through the hands of God that should have never been there. And they got a problem with him. And they're mad and hurt and bitter and angry. We'll pick up more on this topic next week, but let me just suffice it to say One of the problems in our American culture is that we have tried to take Jesus, the church, the Christian life, to mean if I just cross all of my T's and dot all of my I's, God will always have me on the good list, never on the naughty list, and he'll always give me what I need, what I want, what I desire, and he'll help me, protect me, keep me safe, never let anything harmful happen to me. But that's not the life of faith that Jesus called us to. Jesus wanted to know of all of his followers, are you willing to so lay it on the line that you would absolutely give up your life for the sake of me? Because Jesus didn't put anything in fine print. He didn't say, come follow me. And oh, now, by the way, right up front, he said, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be ridiculed. He says, this walk of faith is not going to be easy. It's going to be risky. It's not always comfortable. You're not always going to be liked. People are going to judge you. They're going to say things about you. But I want to know, will you stay the course with me until the very end? And for those who do, he says, welcome. Man, what have I got in store for you for your faithfulness to walk after me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, love you, bless you, we adore you, and God, for those whose hearts have been riddled with pain, just bad stuff, things that we would not even wish on our enemies, that happens, it happens to us, it happens to your people to those who love you and who've been called according to your purposes. So Lord, I I pray this morning for every person, God, just 
for the areas of their life in which they have camouflaged the hurt, the anger, the bitterness, the resentment, the unforgiveness. God, where Satan is just having a heyday in their life, God, I, I pray that you'll just burst that, that cancer sore off of them spiritually, that they might receive healing, oh God, from your Holy Spirit. Lord, we don't want our lives to become so soured, so judgmental that people can't see the love of Christ in us. They only see the judgment, the judgmentalism, the harshness. Lord, we want them to see Jesus, and we know that that cancer, that cancer of judgmentalism, that cancer of Unresolved anger and bitterness and unforgiveness has to be removed for that to happen. God, remove it today. Start that process. Lord, we know your scalpel hurts. It's painful. It's unpleasant. But it's necessary. God, I pray healing over the body of Christ today. Healing over the body of Jesus. Lord, I pray for those who are just holding back, Lord, for whatever reason, fear, what would it be like living without my pain any longer? God, I pray healing over them. Heal the body of Jesus so that we might love in a way that when the world looks at us, they may not agree with us on many things, but they cannot deny the fact that we have loved them with the passion of Jesus to the very end. For it's in Christ's name we pray and ask these things. Amen. So uh, I'm not the one who selects these videos. I don't know. I think Phil did, but ironically enough, Hurricane Katrina was Fred Luter's winter. Right? It was a time in his life where God just really started rocking his faith. And I had the privilege of being in a conference with him when he was navigating through this period in his life. And um, just remember this, that God does his deepest work oftentimes in the winters of our lives. And God always does his deepest work in the deepest part of us. And so God radically changed um, a portion of his life as a result of coming to the other side of winter and being able to experience spring and summer and fall and the, um, just the harvest that came about as a result of Fred, his church, and others who were ministering to those who were devastated by that hurricane. And I got to hear Fred pre preach in our convention um, a message uh, after this had all happened, and he's gotten through it all, and, and God's blessing in mighty ways, and he preached a message on faith, which was probably one of the most profound messages on faith that I'd ever heard. And that message was birthed out of that long winter in his life. God did it a deep work. And so as we are in the... Uh, book of Ecclesiastes, and we're reminded, again, that life has seasons, and God does some of his deepest work in the deepest parts of us in some of the most difficult seasons in our lives. 
So today we're going to talk about um, the problem with God. In the remainder of chapter 3 and through chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon raises five issues that force us out of our comfort zones and into the wisdom of God. Now today I'm only going to tackle one of those five. Next week we'll do all four uh, that are remaining. So I'm being kind to you today because this is a snowy day, so I'm going to have grace and mercy on you, right? We're not going to do all five. Thought about it, but then I, I, I got rid of it. So what we're going to talk about today is what I would call the problem of faulty justice. Faulty justice. And what I mean by that is that sometimes things happen in our lives that hurt us very profoundly. In fact, they might be life-crushing experiences that someone else has brought into your life, and then you want justice, right? You, you demand justice. For example, uh, my neighbor, um, he's putting up a door for me. It's kind of like a, a special door in my house, and his wife last week took her two children to the babysitter. Now, the car's at the curb, still running. She takes the children up to the babysitter, the babysitter opens the front door, the children go inside, she turns around, an SUV pulls up behind her car, somebody jumps out and steals her car. I just drove off with it. So all of her stuff is in there, her purse and, and all of her personal belongings. And so they threw out her cell phone, they threw it out the window, and um, you know they didn't find the car until a day later, two days later, they'd wrecked the car. And so, so what, what is it you, was well, a reminder, First of all, do not leave your car running and turn your back on it, okay? But you, know, you, want, you want justice, right? You want the people to get caught. You want them to have to pay. You want them to have to restore what you've lost. And so sometimes, though, these people who do these things don't ever get caught. They've never apprehended, even though it was all on video. The security camera of her babysitter's house had all of it on video, but they never caught anyone who you know, perpetrated this, this crime. And so in, instinctively, we, we say, well, I want justice, and I want justice now. And there's just so many things that happen to us in life where we scream out, and we want life to be fair, and we want to be, you know, God to be just in all ways, and justice to happen right, like right here and now. And sometimes we like to think of God uh, as he relates to people like Santa Claus does, right? There, there's a naughty people and there are nice people and he has a list and he's always looking at that list to see who's naughty and nice. And of course, if you're naughty, you always get the bad things, right? You get the lump of coal, bad things happen to you in life. But if you're the nice person, then things are always going to happen that are good, the things that are beneficial to you. And so we sometimes try to relate to God that way. God, this is the way it should be because there is in us, because we're created in the image of God, this instinctiveness to want justice to happen in this world. And so it's like, God, if you're just, then the naughty people ought to have to pay and the nice people ought to reap the benefits of being nice. But we understand and we know that life just isn't that way. That a lot of times, very good things happen to very naughty people and very bad things happen to very good people. This is just a part of life. And this really confused Solomon. And he just starts grappling with this and so, you know, you may be struggling, for example, financially. And maybe you're struggling because you don't have a job. During the COVID time, you've lost your job. You're struggling financially. And yet, 
during the same period of time, you have people like, you know, Jeff Bezos or, or those you know, in Wall Street who maybe don't even know God, don't even care about God, and yet they're ma- they've made a gazillion dollars during COVID, and you're struggling, and you're a child of God, and you're walking faithfully after God, and you're struggling, and they're not, and you're saying like Solomon would say, this isn't fair. This, this should not be. God ought to treat us like Santa Claus, right? I've been nice. I need to deserve the nice things. They've been naughty. They deserve the naughty things. Or when you come to Hebrews chapter 11, and uh, I'm going to read from there. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but you recall that Hebrews 11, it was kind of the faith chapter where people were highlighted for the greatness of their faith. But then at the end, we just have a whole group of nameless people, and it says that others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while others still were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and and mistreated, the world was not only worthy of them, they wandered in the deserts and mountains and in the caves and the holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet, not, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And so here is, you know, this situation in the early church where people are just being persecuted and abused and misused. And you have all these people who are ruthless people and wicked people and evil people like King Herod who took the lives of the, you know, young boys, two years and younger, and had them slaughtered from the Jewish mothers because, you know, he thought there was a a rival Messiah there. And, And where's the fairness in that? Where's the justness in that. And so all kinds of things that we grapple with in life and we have to deal with in life deal with the issue of faulty justice, and we have a problem with God over that, whether we acknowledge it or not. And so Solomon is really going to raise two questions for us that he's going to seek to answer through observation. The first one, I put these on your outline. Why do bad things happen to good people and why do good things happen to bad people? This has always been a struggle of humanity, especially for Christians. We just seem to think, you know, well, I'm a follower of Jesus and, and if God were Santa Claus, bad things would, wouldn't happen to good people and good things wouldn't happen to bad people. And how many of you lived with the mindset that if you were just faithful to God and if you just obeyed all of his ways and, and walked after him, that life, you know, would always, your life would always be protected from harm. It would be protected from trials. It'd be protected from discouragement and depression and difficulties. And you would always have the favor of God and you wouldn't catch bad breaks, but the favor of God would always be on you in a very special and unique way. And, and the reason why I know this happens to us and there's this sense of injustice in, within us that we grapple with is because when something happens that is not good and is very harmful and, and is, we causes us to hit the dead of winter in life is that we immediately go through our mental checklist as, God, did I do something wrong? Am I not praying enough? Am I not reading my Bible enough? Did not, you know, what is it about what I am doing that is causing you to allow these things to happen in my life? This isn't, this isn't fair. It's not, it's not just. And we struggle. And some people struggle in a very deep and profound way And so the second question is this that I want to answer this morning. So in light of that, is it possible? Is it possible that God asks 
that you do, let me get back. So is it possible to do all that God asks of you and still have your life fall apart? Is it possible? So Solomon's going to answer these two questions through three observations in the remainder of chapter 3 in Ecclesiastes. And so here's the first one. Life is hard. Life is hard. It's not always fair. Life is hard, but justice will come. Notice I said will come. It's a future thing. Not all justice will happen in your lifetime. Not Not every wrong is going to be made right in your lifetime. Because life is hard. It's just not always fair. So look what Solomon says in chapter 3 and verse 16. He says, and I saw something else under the sun. Remember, he's he's living under the sun, which means, you know, God's not really his perspective. He's uh, not really brought into the scenario. He's just living life on earth apart from God. And God's out there and he's down here. And in the place of, of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. And so he says, I I look out into the world, and I just see a lot of bad things happening to a lot of good people. And I'm wondering why. Where's the fairness? Where's the justness in that? And so our problem with God is that we always want God to tip the scales our way. And so, for example, you may have a friend who goes to the doctor because they're having a physical problem, and while they're being examined, the doctor says, you know, I I noticed something. Um, Like, for example, my wife, she went to the doctor and about a mole on her body, and The doctor looked at it and said, the dermatologist looked at it and said, well, there's nothing wrong with this, but I noticed something over here. And let me take a biopsy of that. And they took a biopsy of that, and it turned out to be melanoma. So they caught it early, was able to do surgery and and, and remove all the melanoma. But what about somebody who, um, maybe that's another friend of yours, goes through a very similar scenario But by the time they get to the doctor, the doctor says, I'm sorry, you're filled with cancer. There's nothing we can do. You're going to die in six months. Where's the fairness? Where's the, these are both good people. They're honest people, God-fearing people, love Jesus, walk with Jesus, but yet two totally different outcomes. And we face these kinds of things all the time. Where one parent, you know, a set of parents, uh, suddenly their, their child is, you know, they're, they're in a car accident and their, their child dies. And another set of parents are in a similar car accident, but their child lives. Well, what determines that? Why, why, how is that fair? How is that just? Where, where is God in all of that? You look around the world and people all across the world are living in huts where they make less than $2 a day at best. And yet here we live in America and we live in our 2,100 and 3,500 square feet houses with perfectly manicured lawns. And we go to our refrigerator and it's always full of food. We turn on our faucet. It's always running water coming out. And so we, we have things. We, we have cars and we have garages. I mean, I've been in many parts of the world that are like garages. What do you do with a garage? We park our cars. Why would you park your car in a garage? See, that's just absolutely foreign to them. And 
our biggest problems oftentimes as Americans is like, like, did Starbucks get my order right? Did they spell my name right on the cup? And so where's the fairness? Where's the justness of that? Like, why is it that I'm so privileged to grow up in America where there are other people who grew up in many different parts of the world that are far less fortunate and have far less and just are barely making it? And children die by the millions of starvation or bad water, and yet we have perfectly good drinking water 24-7. And so for Solomon, he would say, I told you. See, there's no justice. There's no pattern. There's nothing to go by. There's no continuity. Some kids are in their 30s, and both of their parents have died. Some people are in their 60s. Both of their parents are still alive. How do you explain that? Where's the fairness in that? Where's the justice in all of that? And so Solomon would say to us, like what your parents probably said to you growing up, listen, buddy, as my mother would say, life isn't always fair. You just better adjust and get used to it because life is not always fair and it bothers us. And sometimes when the fairness hits us, it bothers us even more and we have a problem with God. I mean, in our Western mindset, when you come to the Gospels, If you really read the Gospels, not so much through a Western mindset, but through an Eastern mindset as to why things are happening, not, you know, what's the reason behind it. When you look at the life of Jesus and his interaction with people and his healing ministry in particular, there seems to be some inconsistency. There seems to be some unfairness in that, that healing ministry. I mean, Jesus didn't come just to heal. He came for many different reasons, but that was obviously a very important part of his ministry while he was here on earth. And as Jesus walked in the first century, there was very little medical technology at that point in time. And people had huge physical problems and they had, you know, physical ailments. And Jesus would be around people and there'd be like hundreds of people. They're bringing people to Jesus and they're all needing healing. And Jesus might select just one person out of the group and heal them. And after the healing's done, he moves on to the next city. And what about all the other people who are left behind? What about all those who did not receive their healing? For example, in John chapter 5, we have the story where Jesus comes to Bethsaida and um, there there are healing pools there. And it was believed that when the angels stirred those healing pools, that the first person in would get healed. And so you have this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. He's laying by these pools and, and Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus looks at him and says, what do you want me to do? Do you, do you want to be healed? Well, yeah, uh, I'm just not like laying here for my health, right? So Jesus does, he says, he looks at him, says, pick up your mat, rise up and walk. And he does. But John was very very, very particular in reminding us that at that same, in that same scenario, there were many people there who needed healing. And there were a lot of people who wanted a touch from the hand of God. But yet Jesus heals this one man and then he leaves. Where's the fairness? Where is the justice? Where does that seem a little bit inconsistent? And oftentimes you would see this with, with Jesus. Um, Guy walks up to Jesus, the rich young ruler, you know, he's a guy, he's rich, he's young, he's got a prominent position, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do, you're going to sell everything that you have, you're going to give it to the poor, come and follow me. And the guy had a lot, and he just said, I I can't do that, so he walks away. But then later on, Jesus is 
you know, on the cross, there's two criminals behind him. These are guys who are like insurrectionists, probably have killed some people, which is why they're on the cross. And the one guy is, you know, just hurling insults at Jesus. The next guy says basically the same thing that the rich young ruler asked him, said, Lord, you know, um, man, remember me when you come into your inheritance. And in other words, Lord, what, do I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, don't worry about it. In five minutes, you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, he tells the one guy he's got to sell everything he has, give it to the poor, and follow him. To the next guy, he says, well, don't worry about it. Don't worry about what you've done in the past. Five minutes, paradise. Here we go. So if you start looking at the life of Jesus and his ministry through a different set of eyes, you begin to see some things that we would consider as inconsistencies. I mean, think about Lazarus. Yes, he was a friend of Jesus, and Jesus loved Lazarus, but when Jesus came to that, came into the hometown of Lazarus, and he stood in front of the tomb, and he called his name, even though Lazarus has been dead for four days, again, John tells us that there were a lot of people there mourning with Mary and Martha over the death of their brother, and don't you think that some of them may have said to Jesus, like, Jesus That grave right over there, my husband's there. How about saying his name? My son, my my son was 12 years old, in an accident, died. His grave's right there. How about saying his name? But we don't read in Scripture that Jesus called anyone else out of their grave at that moment in time. Doesn't he love them? Doesn't he care? Where's, Where's the justice? Two people go into the hospital with COVID. One comes out and the other doesn't. And if you think that God heals someone because they're somehow special and his favorite, you would be sadly mistaken. The Bible says he loves all of us and he cares deeply about us. And so Solomon says life under the sun, and it's hard. It's not always fair. It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem consistent that life has a lot of pain and suffering and death and tragedy and planes are going to go down and children are going to die and co-workers are going to stab you in the back. And, but then he says, but there is coming a day. There's coming a day where everything is going to be made right, where everything is going to be put back in its place that sickness will be reversed and people will be judged and there will be a righteous judge that will put everything perfectly back in its place. The problem is that we always want answers now and we want justice now. If we're really honest with ourselves, When something bad happens to us, we want vengeance, and we want it now. Now, on a much smaller scale, um, I, for example, ordered a vacuum cleaner off of Amazon from this company, and um, it's one of those skinny little vacuums, so I bought that thing, and I got it, charged up the battery, it worked twice, dead. So they send a little card, I call the place, you know, the customer service, I get somebody on the phone, and, and 
as somebody that doesn't speak real good English, but we converse with one another, and she says, well, this is what I want you to do, and so I did all that and, and heard nothing from them. So the second time I had called back, um, now all of a sudden, the, um, it always goes to voicemail, and their voicemail box is always full. So I'm out 150 bucks, and I'm mad. It's like, this thing worked twice, right? All I'm asking you to, uh, all I ask them to do is just send me a new battery for this thing. And they, oh yeah, we'll do that with no problem. And so I waited and waited. I've called and called. I've gone on the website. I've tried calling the company and other places. Nothing. And so, you know, things like that happen to you. That's irritating, right? And so you want vengeance. You want justice. You're like, they owe me $150. And so, you know, in, in my um, <laughs> righteous attitude, I'm like, okay, I'm going I'm to write a scathing review on, on Amazon. And that's exactly what I did. Do you think anybody gives a rip about that? <laughs> no. They don't. Now, let's take this to a much deeper level. The idea that God's final judgment is coming is the only reason sometimes that we wake up in the morning and we don't go out and we don't try to repay evil with evil. You know, I, I, I know a couple whose child was murdered. And when your child is murdered, you, your heart cries out for justice and vengeance, right? Now watch this. If you're not careful, your heart starts start so focusing on that individual who created the pain in your life, that, that anger, that hurt evolves to anger and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. And now all of a sudden you have poisoned your emotional system. You have opened a huge door for the enemies, for Satan to come in and wreak havoc in your life because you so want justice. You so demand vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the parents. And we would sit back and say, you know what? I don't blame them. If it was my child, if it was my grandchild, that, that would be the call of my heart, right? That's what I would want. That's what I would desire. And God says, there will come a day when those who do wrong will pay for what they've done, but the day may not come today. It may not even come in your lifetime. But in the end, God will make all the wrongs right. But we're all concerned about what? The here and now. But I don't want to wait. I want it here. I want it now. I want to make sure that person actually pays for what they have done. And so Jesus gave us parables where he says, listen, I'm going to let the wheat and the chaff grow up together, but one day I will separate it. I'm going to let love and hate grow up together, but one day I will separate it. I'm going to let wickedness and righteousness grow up together. One day I will separate it. But in the meantime, we are going to live in a world among people where bad things happen, and it seems like they've gotten away with it, and it seems like there's no justice. It seems like there's no consistency with God. It seems like God has turned a deaf ear to us. It seems like, it seems like, it seems like, and if we're not careful, we just keep traveling that pathway rooted in bitterness and rooted in unforgiveness and I'm telling you it absolutely just it rips us 
on the inside, and it causes us to become so vengeful and bitter and judgmental that when we look at other people who hurt us in the least way, or we deem things that are, you know, injustices in society, if we're not careful, we begin to hate the very people that we've been called to love. Instead of loving them, we hate them and we judge them because we feel like, you know what, if God's going to wait till the end of the world before his judgment and justice all is, you know, given out, I'm going to give some of it out here and I'm going to give some of it out now and I'm going to make sure they pay you notice what Solomon says there will be a time for every activity a time for every deed hence that word deed almost every single passage that talks about judgment of the on the final uh, final days of God's judgment it always talks about works or deeds or what you did with your life. Revelation 20, great white throne judgment, says the books were open, books plural. One of those books was the deeds, that the, you know, the things that the person had done. Or you look at um, John chapter 5, Romans 2, Matthew 25, where he's talking about God separating sheep and goat. And, you know, what did you do with the least of these or even Ecclesiastes 3? And so the books get open. The question is, what did you do? What did you do with your life, right? Did you only feed yourself? Did you only clothe yourself? Did you help anybody else during the course of your lifetime? Why are these things always brought up, these deeds, when we're dealing with God's justice and God's judgment? And so when we stand before Jesus, and it might be that, you know, you sponsored a kid through, you know, World Vision or Southern Organization, and you can say, and, and the Lord looks at that and says, yes, you have fed, you have clothed this child for many, many years through your, 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 your donations. And, and so um, because of this, this side of, of justice within us and this, this need for vengeance, um, God's very concerned about our deeds, what we do with all of that pent-up anger and bitterness and resentment. And he will call us an account for what we do with all of that in the future. It's the basis of all racism and sexism and all, any other ism that you can think of. It's also fundamentally incompatible with the authentic Christian faith. Jesus said Christians are supposed to be known for their love, not for being judgmental. But yet any survey that's ever been conducted when unbelieving people are asked, how do you view Christians, were almost always viewed as being judgmental. And I think there's a reason. I think that with this problem with God, this thing that we struggle with, this thing that we try to deal with inside of us, and all of this pent-up emotion, especially when it's personal to you, um, we, can, we, can, we can become judgmental and begin treating people in a way that is, that is unchristlike. For when Jesus came uh, against people, you know, came to people who were, who were struggling in their lives, one of the things that he beautifully blended together is that he blended grace and truth together, right? So you can't just have one or the other. You can't just have grace without truth because that just gives everybody license to do whatever they want, and that's not love. Because there are a lot of things that people do that they may not know that is harmful for, you know, for them. But you know, God understands it's harmful and so he warns us about it. But you can't have all truth without grace because then otherwise you just seem to be harsh and judgmental and not caring. 
So Jesus beautifully fused the two together. Here's my point is this, is that we live in a world where justice is not always done immediately. We live in a world where justice may not fully come until the end of our lives, until Jesus, you know, he's the judge and jury over the judgment seat of Christ, over the great white throne judgment, and he makes all things, you know, the wrongs right, and, and, you know, he's the one who, who deals out the justice to those, whether good or bad, and so in the meantime, what we have to be careful as believers, as followers of Christ, is that we don't let Satan root this bitterness within us. As the Bible says, let no root of bitterness spring up within you. Because if you do, then we become more judgmental than we, do, than we are loving. So when Jesus, again, <laughs> says to us, hey, 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 your enemies, yeah, the ones that hurt you, Judge them. Man, go after them. Pick at them. Do whatever you, make them feel bad. Just make them pay until I deal with them later. Is that what he said? He said, no, I want you to love them. I want you to pray for them. And I want you to do good towards them. What? Do you, do, Lord, did you, did, you, did you see what they did? did you, do you know what they've done to me? Do you... Have you heard what they said about me? You know, your coworker that stabbed you in the back, that slandered you, that tore down your character to all your coworkers so that they would dislike you as much as they did? And so, loveless truth is always found in, in judgment. It's impossible to love someone and judge someone at the same time. But what if they're making a mistake? I need to correct them. Well, then do it in love, not in judgmental superior attitude. What is a superior attitude? A superior attitude is an attitude that conveys to somebody, I'm better than you, I'm smarter than you, I'm more righteous than you, you ought to be like me. Uh, you know, if you were like me, you would be okay, right? And uh, one of the first things I do when I, when I meet people who are really struggling, right, and they're, and they're just like... They're in a winter of, of life, and there's just got a lot of, maybe it's bad habits, maybe it's addictions, or whatever it might be in their life going on, and, and you know, they, they find out I'm a pastor. You know, when people find out I'm a pastor, it's amazing how people's countenance change, the, the conversation changes. You can just see the look on their face like, oh, you're going to judge me, aren't you? And so one of the very first things I do immediately is I start sharing let me tell you, can I just tell you my story? Can I share my story with you and tell them about my past? Because immediately it puts us on level playing ground. It's my way of saying, I'm not coming to you with judgmental attitude. I'm not coming with you with any air of superiority. I want you to know, man, I've been where you are. I think we can connect. I think I could help you if you want help. But if you don't want help, then okay. You know, when, when the reason why Jesus asked people all the time, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do for you? Do you really want to be well? Is because if people didn't want it, guess what he did? He walked away. You cannot help anybody who doesn't want help. No one. And so if I, if I come with, you know, with love, nobody has, has been forced into change because somebody judged them into that change, but millions of people have been changed because somebody helped love them into that change. 
Because when I got saved and I was in the youth group, man, and, and I was, you know, a pretty scary person, and I just wasn't not well rounded around the edges and, and said things and did things because I wanted to test the authenticity of this love that people said that they had and care and concern. But they just kept loving me, right? So, you know, if I'm smoking a joint out in the parking lot, they just kept loving me. If, if I, you know, said some curse words in church, they didn't, like, remove me and judge me and say, you can't never come back. See, the purpose of stepping into someone else's life is not to judge them, but it's to help them. And the way that we do that is we love them. Judgment is not grounded, is grounded in arrogance Love is always grounded in humility. It's always grounded in humility. Judgment always says, I'm better than you and I'm superior to you, but humility does not do that. You can't pray for someone you judge because you're actually not for them. Do you know you can pray for a person out of anger, out of arrogance, out of a sense of superiority? not even realize what you're doing? That's not the prayer Jesus is looking for. He's looking for prayer warriors who will love people, who will pray for them in a humble way because we know that we're just two beggars, right? One beggar telling the other beggar where they can find the bread of life. It's not because I'm superior to you. It's not because I'm smarter than you. It's not because, uh, you know, God loves me more than you. It is because God wants to help you. God wants to see you saved. God wants to see you set free. God wants to see you healed and delivered from the strongholds that wreak havoc. So here's what the Bible says to us in Romans 12. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And so true judgment is left to God. That's why we have this love-hate relationship with justice, because we want... We want justice when somebody else hurts us, but if we hurt somebody else, we want what? Mercy. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. I won't do it again. It'll never happen. My whole point in this first point, I know it's been a long point, and I'll speed up the process here, is simply this. You have to be okay. If you're going to make it in life, and you're going to offload all of this hurt, anger, bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness. You have to be okay with the fact that justice will not always be done in your lifetime towards the people who hurt you, but God will settle the score eventually. It's not ours to sit in the seat of judgment. It is ours to sit in the seat of love so that we can take the gospel, the healing power of God, to the lives of those who even harm us. It's amazing to me that how many people, and they're far and few in between, but how many of them, you know, their, their child was murdered by somebody, and yet they go to the courthouse, and they meet the person, and they let that person know, I'm not going to harbor anger, I'm not going to harbor, harbor bitterness for the rest of my life, I want you to know that I forgive you, I love you, and I pray God's grace upon you. And how that melts the heart of the perpetrator, but not always. Not always. And so the second thing, observation he makes is that death is certain, but it's not the end. Death is certain, but it's not the end. I also thought, as for men, 
God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust they will return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and that the spirit of animal goes down into the earth? That's pretty harsh. I've watched enough in National Geographic to know that the animal kingdom is a harsh place. Right? You're always on the food chain, and somebody's after you as their next meal. Right? They, they bite, they devour, they do everything for survival. Kind of sounds like the realm of humanity. You don't think we don't bite and devour? Step out on Black Friday into the stores and go after a TV. That's on sale. I remember my mom worked in a, in a department store, and that was back in the day when Cabbage Patch dolls were just like all the rage, right? Cabbage Patch dolls. And, uh, you know, it was Christmas time, and so they had a big sale, and the Cabbage Patch dolls, and, and you know, people just stormed the store, and the, I mean, she said, we just stood behind the counter and just started, like, tossing them over the counter for fear of being stamped, you know, just tromped to death by people wanting to get a Cabbage Patch doll. Now, you can't even hardly find a Cabbage Patch doll, and most people don't even know what they are, and they don't even care. Right? The things that we devour each other for on Sunday are things that we forget about by the following week. This is humanity. And so he's saying, you know, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if somebody died and came back and told us what it's like on the other side? Solomon didn't have Jesus. We do. Solomon didn't have the New Testament. We do. All he knew is, like, you know what? I'm traveling along with my horse. He dies, I die. We both get put in a hole and dirt thrown on top of us. Life is so meaningless. There's no justice in that. Lord, where's the consistency here? Now, we know better, right? We have the New Testament. We have Jesus who died, came back, told us what it's all about. But yet people every day, we rub shoulders with people every day who have all kinds of views and philosophies about what happens after death. There are those who are universalists, and the universalist simply says, yes, we all die, and yes, you may go to heaven, I may go to hell, but in the end, God's going to empty out hell and bring him into heaven and say, okay, you know, all the all the oxen are free, come out, come out from wherever you are, I'm giving you free passage, uh, you know, you, you suffered long enough. We're all going to be brought to the same place, and we're all going to sing Kumbaya together. So that's what a universalist believes. And most Christians would say, well, I'm not a universalist. But when you really push a lot of you know, uh, uh, Christians about universalism, they really kind of are. It's like, uh, it's one of the reasons why we don't have such a passion that we need to have about sharing the gospel with the lost. Because in our minds, we're thinking, well, maybe in the end, we all just end up in the same place. And then there are those who believe in, in annihilation, right? Uh, that's what I believed growing up. Not because somebody taught me that. It was just, I, I thought, you know, once after you die, you're just annihilated. You don't even know that you've ever existed. You know, you got this life, eat, drink, and be merry. Because after you die, it's all over with. There's just nothing else left. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. And certainly, um, you know, Jesus talked more about heaven and hell than anyone else in the scripture. And he always talked in terms of eternity and, and not temporary and something that was eternal, something that lasts forever. And he talks about 
about a narrow path, that few who find it that leads to paradise, and there's a broad path, and many who find it that leads to destruction. And so, you know, Jesus wasn't fuzzy on his views about universalism and annihilationism. There's reincarnation and purgatory, both basically teach the same thing, that somewhere in the future you're going to have a second chance at salvation. Just wait it out. But yet Hebrews 9.27 says, It is an appointed unto man to die once, and after this the judgment. Or soul sleep, you've heard of that, where you just slip into an unconscious state, and at some point you'll be resurrected and brought into heaven. Yet the Apostle Paul did not teach soul sleeping. He talked about being absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. And the tense of those verbs is that it is, it is an immediate thing. It's not like you, you go into some kind of soul sleep that, that you're going to be there in suspended state of unconsciousness for an extended period of time. And then there's the one that we all hear every time you go to a funeral at any funeral home and anybody you've ever walked up to a casket to, regardless of what their life was like, the person sitting there, the loved one says, well, he really looks good. um, And I know he's gone to, or she has gone to a better place. What is the better place? For most people, they have the concept that we turn into angels. The Bible does not teach that humanity turns into angels. Angels are created beings apart from humanity. We don't sit in heaven, you know, strumming a harp and singing songs in a diaper on a cloud. Those, those are just, you know, figments of people's imagination. And But Jesus comes along in John chapter 5 and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you. Now when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he says, listen, I want to I download some truth into you. And I don't have time to read it because I'm out of time, but if you were to read John chapter 25, or John 5 through verses 25 through 29, here's what you would find, is that there is coming the day where Jesus will be the judge, right? So here's what the Bible teaches, that you and I have spirit, soul, and body. When we physically die, our spirit, our soul, the eternal part of us separates from the body. Yes, the body is put into the ground, but for a temporary period of time, that one day Jesus will come back, he will resurrect that body, and it will be reunited with my soul, and I will be complete. The salvation process will have fulfilled its completion. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will stand at the great at the uh, judgment seat of Christ. You're not being judged as to whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. You're eternal security was secured the moment you, you, you chose to, to uh, put your faith and trust in Jesus, but you will be judged on the things that we do, the things that we say. The Bible's very clear about what is going to happen at the judgment seat. It has all to do with the things that we do, the things that we say, the motives that we've had, and we're, we're judged on the basis of rewards that are going to be given to us and positions that we will hold all throughout eternity. However, for the unbeliever, they go again. They are buried just like us. Their, their, their soul goes into Hades, a kind of a holding tank for the unbelieving. And one day that body will be resurrected, reunited with their soul, and they will stand at the great white throne judgment of Christ. And again, the books are going to be open. And he says in the end, all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, they will go on to eternal Destruction, not destruction in that they're annihilated, but in that they are going to receive punishment in hell, right? So that's eternal. It's not temporary. It is eternal place. And why would God do that? Well, that's a whole nother message. But I will say this. God is just. If you look at Jesus's parable about the two men who died, one went to 
went to paradise and the other did not, the one who was in hell, not, not one time did he ever say, you are unjust for sending me here. The only thing he says was, hey, bring, have somebody go get me some water. I need my thirst quenched. And so what Jesus goes on to say is that all judgment has been placed into the hands of Christ. And Jesus will judge righteously. He knows all things. It will be truthful. It will be just. It will be complete. And therefore, because Christ is the ultimate judge, you and I have no right to sit in that seat. Doesn't mean that we throw out police officers or courtrooms or oh, those things seeking justice for the things that are done wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. But I'm simply saying that not every injustice that's done to us is going to be dealt with adequately and completely in this lifetime. Number three, life continues, but it may not always be easy. So the second question I ask you is, is it possible to do all that God asks you and still have your life fall apart? And the answer to that question is equivocally, yes, it is. I can give you all kinds of examples. John the Baptist would be one. Jesus said of John the Baptist, there's no greater prophet than John the Baptist. He was the one who recognized Jesus. He is the forerunner to the Messiah. He is the one who preached and people came and repented of their sins and were baptized. And yet John the Baptist is thrown into prison and he sends word to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, um, I'm in prison. Am I getting out? And Jesus sent back word to John. It's called a remise, which means he gave him part of a passage, but not the whole passage. And the part that he left out is where Jesus will set the prisoners free. And what he was saying to John is, John, you're not getting out of prison and John is beheaded. Was John a good guy? Yes. Was he doing what God wanted him to do? Absolutely. Is it what God created him to be and do? You bet it was, but yet it did not turn out well for him. Or Jeremiah, the prophet of God. He had a prophetic ministry to the nations. And God said to Jeremiah, hey, I want you to know some things. First of all, ain't nobody going to listen to you. And secondly, you're going to be ridiculed. And thirdly, things aren't going to go well at all. And they didn't. Or you look at uh, Moses. You know, he spent 40 years leading Israel in the wilderness only to die without being able to enter into the promised land. Or what about Mary, the mother of Jesus, given the privilege to giving birth to the Messiah, but when Jesus was taken to the temple to be circumcised, Simeon said to her, a sword is going to pierce your soul. And it did. See, we can do what God is calling us to do, and we can do the things that God has instructed us to do, but it doesn't always mean that your life is not going to fall apart in some way, or just look at those in Hebrews chapter 11. Time and time again, God asks us, will you love me and follow me even when it hurts, even when it doesn't make sense, even when you want to resign and go the opposite way? I've seen many people walk away from the faith when they feel like things entered into their lives that were filtered through the hands of God that should have never been there. And they got a problem with him. And they're mad and hurt and bitter and angry. 
We'll pick up more on this topic next week, but let me just suffice it to say, one of the problems in our American culture is that we have tried to take Jesus, the church, the Christian life, to mean if I just cross all of my T's and dot all of my I's, God will always have me on the good list, never on the naughty list, and he'll always give me what I need, what I want, what I desire, and he'll help me, protect me, keep me safe, never let me anything harmful happen to me, but that's not the life of faith that Jesus called us to. Jesus wanted to know of all of his followers, are you willing to so lay it on the line that you would absolutely give up your life for the sake of me? Because Jesus didn't put anything in fine print. He didn't say, come follow me. And oh, now, by the way, right up front, he said, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be ridiculed. He says, this walk of faith is not going to be easy. It's going to be risky. It's not always comfortable. You're not always going to be liked. People are going to judge you. They're going to say things about you. But I want to know, will you stay the course with me until the very end? And for those who do, he says, welcome. Man, what have I got in store for you for your faithfulness to walk after me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, love you, bless you. We adore you. And God, for those whose hearts have been riddled with pain, just bad stuff, things that we would not even wish on our enemies to have happened. But it happens. It happens to us. It happens to your people, to those who love you and who've been called according to your purposes. And so Lord, I, I pray this morning for every person, God, just mm, for the areas of their life in which they have camouflaged the hurt, the anger, the bitterness, the resentment, the unforgiveness, God, where Satan is just having a heyday in their life, God, I, I pray that you'll just burst that, that cancer sore off of them spiritually, that they might receive healing, oh God, from your Holy Spirit. Lord, we don't want our lives to become so soured, so judgmental that people can't see the love of Christ in us. They only see the judgment the judgmentalism, the harshness. Lord, we want them to see Jesus, and we know that that cancer, that cancer of judgmentalism, that cancer of unresolved anger and bitterness and unforgiveness has to be removed for that to happen. God, remove it today. Start that process. Lord, we know your scalpel hurts, it's painful, it's unpleasant, but it's necessary. God, I pray healing over the body of Christ today. Healing over the body of Jesus. Lord, I pray for those who are just holding back, Lord, for whatever reason, fear, what would it be like living without my pain any longer? God, I pray healing over them. 
heal the body of Jesus so that we might love in a way that when the world looks at us, they may not agree with us on many things, but they cannot deny the fact that we have loved them with the passion of Jesus to the very end. For it's in Christ's name we pray and ask these things.